few things sell like a good love story. You know, you might love the old world romance of Pride and Prejudice, or maybe you're more into the new school storytelling of Taylor Swift. You might like some classic George Strait, check yes or no. Or maybe you're more into a modern flick with George Clooney and Julia Roberts. But whatever your, whatever your flavor of choice, there should be no confusion that marriage, marriage is what brings us together today. We love a good love story. And it's good that we do love good love stories. Yet despite, despite our love of love stories, our culture seems to have a pretty strong pessimism towards it actually working out for us. Maybe you've heard comedian Chris Rock's famous line. He says, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? Think about that for a second. I hope those aren't the only two options. He seems to suggest that perhaps they are. But it brings us to our, our topic today, the gospel and marriage. The gospel and marriage. Now, as soon as we say the gospel and marriage, I want you to know if you're here and you're not married, I, I see you. And it's not the time to tune out. There's, there's a lot in this message I think that's for you. In fact, there's an entire point that's dedicated to those who aren't married and how they can think through their, their singleness at this time. It's important to learn to develop and defend a biblical worldview. And you know, maybe a third angle there, there might become a day when you are married in which this would apply to you in a different way. Now, if you're new with us, this sermon series is a break from our norm where we're working chapter by chapter through a book of the Bible. We call that expository preaching. Uh, this is a topical series. You see on the banners titled, Not Your Own, where what we're doing is we're taking the cultural narrative, maybe the main cultural narrative of our day, that you should be true to yourself, that you should look into your own heart for your deepest desires to find what's right and follow it. We're going to analyze that cultural narrative on a whole host of biblical topics or of topics and apply biblical truth to those topics. And one of the things we know about all of this is that getting a right view of God is incredibly important. And that's why we're reading Isaiah 40 each week. Right? None of these sermons are really an exposition of Isaiah 40, but that passage just gives us such a grand view of God that over time it's good for us to be immersed in that and just get to know more and more who is God, and that will inform and transform our lives. So this week we're coming to the topic of marriage, which builds on last week's sermon. So if you, you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that on, on the podcast. It's, it's kind of connected to this week's sermon as well. But what we're going to see about marriage today is five aspects of marriage. The, the nature of marriage, the mission of marriage, the pursuit of marriage, the challenge of marriage, and the secret of marriage. So it's nature, mission, pursuit. It's challenge and the secret of it. Let's jump right into the first point, the, the nature of marriage. The nature of marriage. Now, most of our relationships fall into one of two categories. They're either what we call consumer relationships or covenant relationships. Consumer relationships basically look at a particular item and they're analyzing the cost and relative value of that item. So if the, the cost gets too high or the value gets too low, you just move on from that relationship. Maybe that's your relationship with your internet provider or with you know, the, the people where you get car insurance or your favorite coffee shop or something like that. The cost gets too high, value gets too low, you're ready to move on to the next thing. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with consumer relationships. In fact, many of our relationships are built that way, and I think it can even be a good thing. 
But it's important that we don't cons- uh, confuse consumer relationships with covenant relationships. A covenant relationship is a permanent, exclusive commitment. If you want to, it's a simple definition, a permanent, exclusive commitment where you're not running any of these cost-value calculations like you would in a consumer relationship. And what the Bible does is it both creates and defines what the marriage covenant is supposed to look like. It creates it and defines it. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. It says, the two shall become one flesh. And then Ephesians 5 in the New Testament comes along and further clarifies what the covenant is supposed to look like and compares it to Christ in the church. So Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, you see on the screen here, It'll quote from Genesis 2 in that and, and give some more clarity. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, what that tells us is many things, but at a very foundational level, that the marriage covenant, by definition, is a covenant between a man and a woman. It's important we recognize that words matter, that marriage means a particular thing because it was created by God. I think pastorally, it's important that we learn to fight for biblical words and maintain biblical words. What that means then is that what our culture calls gay marriage is not actually marriage because the covenant, by definition, is between a man and a woman. So maybe it would be more appropriate that we say so-called gay marriage or something like that, but to recognize, no, it's not actually what marriage is. And it, it doesn't mean there can't be meaningful relationships outside of a marital covenant. That's not what we're saying at all. But to recognize the covenant is created and defined in a very specific way by the God of the universe. Now, the broader point that we were, were making is there's a difference between consumer relationships and covenant relationships. And this difference is of epic proportion. So it's wise of us to slow down and think about that for a second. We don't move on past it too quickly. You see, the only way to true security, the only way to true vulnerability is through a permanent, exclusive commitment, through a covenant you see, if you're dating, no matter how much you say, I love you, I'm committed to you, this is all going to be, you've got all the flowery rhetoric, right? Regardless of all the words you use there, you still basically have to keep up appearances and prove to the other person that you bring enough value for, to their life for them to stick around. You're not yet in a covenant relationship. And even you might say, well, we've, we've, we've moved in together. We're going to further levels of commitment. Well, you might be moving deeper into commitment, but despite getting physically naked together, that doesn't mean you've become economically and emotionally and legally naked together, if you can use that same sort of language there. There's a difference between a covenant that gives the security and the opportunity for vulnerability that just doesn't exist in other kinds of relationships. And what's maybe most surprising about this Ephesians 5 passage is that God shockingly says he wants a covenant relationship with us. You've got to understand this is utterly unique among world religions. If you're not yet a Christian or you're exploring Christianity, this is something to to look into. We might expect of a God that he would be some sort of a, a divine king that would command obedience, 
Or perhaps he's a divine sage, and he's got this great wisdom, and like a shepherd, he sort of leads his people by inspiring them with a better path forward. But God says, no, I, the God of the Bible, yes, I'm the king, and yes, I'm a shepherd, but I also want an intimate covenant relationship with you, where you know me and I know you. He promises the security of this covenant relationship. He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'll never divorce you. You never have to wonder about the security of my love. It's a remarkable thing that's totally unique to Christianity. Maybe you hear me say that and you wonder, Justin, if God's love for us is how we're supposed to love others, and he says he'll never divorce us. Does that mean that divorce is never allowed for us either? It's a good question to ask. And no, that's not what that means, because God, in his kindness, recognizes that certain sins are so destructive that divorce may be an option. He grants allowance there. But we recognize that divorce is never a good thing. It's never a desirable thing but rather it's God making accommodation for our weaknesses. There there are others that may hear me talk about marriage this morning and say, Justin, the idea of signing legal documents down at the courthouse, it just feels, I don't know, kind of binding, kind of constraining. It just kind of stifles joy and spontaneity. It just feels kind of old and stodgy. Like, do we really have to carry on with that anymore? Can't just love be love and let us get on with it. If that's the way you've thought about that or you've heard somebody say that, it might be helpful to think back to a classic work of literature in Homer's Odyssey, where Odysseus is on the ship and they're going out and there's an area on their journey where it's marked by what's called the otherworldly sirens. If you're not familiar, otherworldly siren is like a dangerous mermaid that's calling the ship and the shipmates over that way. And what Odysseus knows is as the otherworldly sirens, these mermaids are calling that many ships have gotten distracted from their mission. They've turned aside to what looked good, this calling, oh, this looks really good, what these mermaids have to offer. And as the ships went aside, the ship would hit the rocks, and it would crash, and it would sink, and everybody would die, and they wouldn't make it to their final mission. So Odysseus is looking out and he says, hey, when we come up on these otherworldly sirens, what I want you guys to do is I want you to tie me to the mast because I'm going to start to say irrational things. I'm going to have my strongest desires pulling me in a direction that's not actually where my deepest desires are because I want to stay on mission for what I'm supposed to do. And he says to his shipmates, he says, whatever happens, whatever I say to you, don't untie me. Because I need to be bound to the mass so that we can stay on mission together here. In other words, it's as if Odysseus knew that we're prone to trade what we want most for what we want at the moment. He says, guys, I need your help to bind me in this commitment to the mass. And in a similar way, entering into a covenant relationship that's legally binding, ties ourselves to the mast and says, there's something better on the other side. Where my strongest desires to go do what I want may not be best. And I need something stronger than my desires to tie me here because there's greater joy, greater freedom on the other side of this. Marriage is a good thing. It ought to be pursued. It ought to be valued. Hebrews says a marriage bed should be undefiled. The nature of marriage. Covenant versus consumer relationship. We get that. And that brings us, secondly, to the mission of marriage. The mission of marriage. 
And the cultural narrative, we're, again, we're contrasting, says to look in at yourself. What are your deepest desires? Marriage exists for your personal satisfaction. Look to your own heart for what it needs. So whether that be a same-sex relationship, whether that just merely be a long-term dating relationship, whether it be a polyamorous relationship where there's many people involved, you do you. In fact, I saw an article not so long ago in the New York Times that was titled, The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage. It's taking what's kind of understood and just putting it on the headline. And I understand that most of the people in this room hearing this sermon this morning are going to say, oh yes, that's to be rejected. We shouldn't think that way. But I wonder if along the way you can reject the headline and in creeping ways the narrative floats into your life and you adopt that way of thinking in more subtle ways. We start to think about our spouse or potential spouse as saying, well, who's somebody that can meet my needs and fulfill my desires? Who's somebody that really won't try to change me too much and is perfectly compatible? And that's what we're looking for. Well, friend, let me just tell you, that person doesn't exist. They simply don't. Because what's going to happen is you're going to change, and they're going to change. And if you ask your spouse to fulfill all of your needs and all of your desires, what you're actually going to do is put a load onto them that is too heavy for any human being to bear, and you're going to crush them and get totally disenchanted with them in the process because you've asked them to do something they're incapable of doing. In other words, finding the right person, there's a single person you need to marry that can actually satisfy you, they are my single soulmate, that's a modern myth. It doesn't exist. Professor Stanley Hauerwas is a professor at Duke and has done some extensive research on this and wrote the following. Here's what Professor Hauerwas says. The assumption is that there's someone just right for us to marry. And then if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry, we just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while, and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means we are not the same person after we've entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. If you've been married for a little while, you know that last line is true. You change, and they change, Say, how do we continue to demonstrate love when you're not the same person you were when we were all googly-eyed? What we're saying is if you look internal for your own desires and then say, who can fulfill them? That model is a very broken model for marriage. It's not going to work and it won't leave you satisfied at all. So what does the biblical model say in contrast to that? And I'd suggest there's two parts to the biblical mission for marriage. The first part is this, that you would experience deep change through deep friendship. Deep change through deep friendship. Ephesians 5, we'll go back to the scriptures and see this being uh, talked about, verses 22 and 25. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. For both the, the man and the woman, there's a call to deep character change. 
And anytime you try to form character in yourself, you're going to find all kinds of desires that are contrary to doing the right thing. You're going to find your own weaknesses and hopefully grow through them. It's a little bit like exercise. I, I started exercising a few weeks ago for the first time in a while, and the next morning I woke up and I was terribly sore. My body was yelling at me, what are you doing? Now, did the exercise make me weak? No, it didn't make me weak. It revealed where I was already weak. And marriage is similar in that. It reveals where our character is weak. It brings those things to the surface and says, yeah, you need to keep doing some more push-ups and you need to run maybe a half a mile or a mile today and work in these areas and you start to become changed as a person through it. And I wonder if you're, if you're married this morning, if you've lost sight of this purpose of marriage to experience deep character change because once you lose sight of that mission of marriage, you're bound to get off track and expecting something else to happen. Right? There, there's all kinds of things we live as if they are the marriage, the mission, although maybe we wouldn't verbalize it that way. We sometimes live as if the mission is to make it to bed tonight without too much fighting. Now, that's not the mission. We live as if the mission is to make it to the end of the month with a little bit of money in the bank account. That's not the mission. We live as if the mission is to grind it out and stay together for the sake of the kids until they graduate. No, the mission is that you would be deeply changed by learning to love a deeply flawed person, as you yourself are a deeply flawed person. So I just want to encourage you to engage your brain and think about this today, that when you lose sight of that target, you're going to miss the target. You've got to see that. And a different way of saying it, the primary purpose of marriage isn't to make you happy, but to make you holy. And if you see that, you'll likely be happier along the way. But if you aim for a marriage that first and foremost makes you happy, you'll get neither happiness nor holiness. You've got to follow what God has said here. There's all kinds of reflection questions I could give you, things to talk about over lunch today, consider this, consider that. But maybe the most helpful thing I could say is we're thinking on this and, and asking ourselves, if I lost sight of the mission, is this. Commit to sign up for Grace Marriage this year. I'm, I'm serious in this. It's, it's a time where you'll be together with your spouse. You can discuss things. Like There's a reason that we believe in this, and we think it is really valuable for you to invest in your marriage through a series of conversations, not just a one-off where you can check the box and move on from it, but to continue this pattern of investing in this marriage. And as we talk together, as we learn to become better listeners, we realize, i got some things to work on, but I've got an opportunity to experience deep character change through deep friendship. A grace marriage is like a marriage tune-up. You're not going to skip changing the oil on your car, or at least you shouldn't. Sometimes you're going to be in a fender bender. You need to go to the body shop and get that fixed up. And, and grace marriage serves in that way as well. Is there room for counselors in need uh, when there's more? Maybe you've totaled the vehicle. You've, you've bent the frame. Like, yeah, grace marriage is maybe not crisis intervention, but it's helpful even alongside counseling ministries as well. So I, I want you to, to sign up. I'm serious on this. This is a, it's a big deal, and I, I hope you will. Now, that's the first mission of marriage, deep change through deep friendship. But there's a second biblical mission for marriage as well, the creation and formation of children. Creation and the formation of children. The Bible says that children should be desired by all. Of course, our culture say, well, if, if kids satisfy you, then 
go, you know, go for it. Go, go do the parenting thing if you want to. If not, that's fine. But Genesis 1 said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And if I could turn to a, a different passage in one of the prophets, Malachi chapter 2 and verse 15, notice the logic of what's being said here. This is, this is remarkable. Malachi writes, did he not make them one with a portion of their, the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. You see, we recognize that marriage was intended to be fruitful, to bear kids and to form them spiritually, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. We recognize that because of the fall, sometimes that can't happen. Infertility can be incredibly difficult. You've got to understand, it's not a judgment on you for a particular sin. You're not less than as a person or less than in your marriage. We lament the effects of the fall in all areas, and especially this one. But we do recognize that as a general rule, married couples should seek kids. And most of the modern objections to that just aren't very good. We hear people say, well, we're not ready yet. We could never handle that level of responsibility. To which I say, well, to me, it sounds like you're saying you're not ready to get married yet. Not according to what God has said. We say, well, we're not financially stable yet. And we get some more money put aside. And the vast majority of the time, what that means is I'm demanding a standard of living that's simply higher than what it ought to be because I've valued something more highly than God has valued it. Now, I suggest, aren't there some exceptions? Yes, there are certain rare exceptions. But 99% of the conversations I've had with folks, it all, well, 99% of the time, it comes back to this. We don't actually value kids as a good gift to be desired and pursued. And once you get that figured out, then the other objections are a lot easier to grapple with. If, if you're here and you're using birth control of any variety, let me just take a moment here and encourage you to exercise some caution. Exercise caution. I'm going to encourage you to seek a Christian doctor because a lot of doctors in our world that are prescribing birth control have an ethical antenna that's maybe not attuned as tightly as it ought to be to what the scriptures say. I'm going to encourage you to seek a Christian doctor who can help you think through that, or a Catholic doctor. Usually the Catholics do a good job in this area. At a minimum, you're seeking a pill that is a non-abortifacient. That's an absolute bare minimum. But you also want to consider the long-term effects and some unintended consequences that often come along with that. I'd encourage you, this is you this morning, to consider some options that are not pill-related. There's a whole host of different ways that you could pursue that, and maybe not taking the first thing the doctor gives you, but say, how can I honor God, walk in wisdom, and work through these things together? Maybe you're saying, Justin, is there like a, a quota of kids we're supposed to have? <laughs> no, there's not, not a quota, okay? Uh, here's what we're saying. You need to embrace that kids are a good gift from God and ought to be desired. Not always possible, but embrace the truth of Scripture there. The goal isn't merely to have lots of kids, but to form them spiritually. We need to recognize, parents, that your marriage relationship will be the single most significant factor in shaping your kids spiritually. They're watching how you speak to one another, how you listen to one another, how you relate to one another, how you demonstrate love for one another. 
and how you don't. Yes, family devotions are, are really important. Shapes kids. So whether you do that at 8 p.m. or over the dinner table or take a more organic approach where we want to talk about it as we come and go, your kids know what you're excited about. My, my daughter Tessa knows that I love the Colts. She knows that in the fall, come 1 p.m. on Sunday afternoon, we're going downstairs and we've got a date on the couch to watch the Colts. But she also knows that at random points through the year, we're going to talk about what the Colts are doing, what's happening in the draft, and we don't have to schedule a time to talk about the Colts. It comes up, and she knows that. It's similar in your relationship with your kids. They know if you're excited to talk about the things of God. We understand the biblical mission of marriage is radically different than the cultural mission of marriage. So we're wise to ask ourselves, where am I reading off the cultural teleprompter more carefully than I'm reading my Bible here? And consider that. It's the mission of marriage. It brings us third to the pursuit of marriage. The pursuit of marriage. You ask Justin, what does the Bible say about dating and engagement? What does it say about courtship? And the, the answer is actually, in an explicit way, very, very little. We're living in a, in a wisdom category here. And so what's important that we recognize is the nature and mission of marriage must shape how you plan for and pursue marriage. And let me say that again because that's really important. The nature and mission of marriage must shape how you plan for and pursue marriage. You need to recognize that singleness is a gift, just like marriage is a gift. And like all good gifts, either of them can be idolized. And if you idolize marriage while you're single, it will become absolutely brutal when you're married because you're going to put a load of weight on the spouse that they simply can't handle. We talked about that before. So I want to encourage you to talk about the pursuit of marriage. I want to encourage you, before you pursue marriage, don't waste your singleness. It's a gift that God has given. And if he gives the gift of marriage, then thank him for it and glorify him in it. But if I'm going to say all those things, let's, let's move into three ideas on the pursuit of marriage to think about. You start with the core of the person. Start with their core. At a minimum, this means I'm only going to date Christians, but there's a lot of people we know that claim to be Christians and show no fruit. So you need to go deeper than that and ask, has this person been baptized? Have they joined a local church? Are they actively serving? Are they regularly giving? Do I see them valuing the least of these in their world? Do I see them pursuing evangelism and discipling relationships? Do I see them caring about global missions and investing there? And as you start to think about others that way, you're wise to turn the mirror around and say, is this me? You pursue godliness. A second implication, maybe, is you're going to look for a best friend. Seek a best friend. It might be somebody who's your best friend right now, but also someone who could become your best friend. You're wise to not over-prioritize looks. You know how this works. You walk into a room and immediately eliminate 70% of the people there. Don't pretend like that doesn't happen, right? That's exactly what happens. And there's only three, and then you start to go around and say, well, is there any chemistry between the three of us here? they're going to change pretty quickly. And one of the things that uh, is important to recognize, our world tells us that sexual chemistry leads to friendship. 
And it's exactly the opposite. Deep friendship is what actually leads to sexual chemistry. In fact, there was a, a study from the, the National Marriage Project. It's a, based out of the University of Virginia. It's, it's by no means a, a Christian operation, where they found that among those who lived together before marriage, they actually experienced higher levels of divorce than those who didn't live together. I think the reason for this is there ends up being nothing sexier in the world than somebody that you find deeply admirable. You say, well, I, I should admire that person to the stars and back. And they look back and say, I admire you, and I want you. That's a beautiful thing. So deep friendship is actually the baseline. It's the foundation that leads to everything else. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. That's why you value friendship first. And it's not just the the character things. Of course that matters. But you're also looking, do these people have an ability to understand others? You look to serve together. You listen to what those around you are saying. Listen to your closest mentors in your community. Do we have the ability to solve problems together, you might ask? You know, a lot of times problem solving among couples isn't really problem solving. It's just one person persisting till the other one gives up. <laughs> That's not actually solving problems and finding a better way forward. And in the dating stage, you're looking for, are we good friends and can we work through things together while we both give a little bit? Maybe the third thing I would say, just the first was start at the core, the second, look for a best friend. Third, embrace conflict in your relationship. That's, I know, not real rosy while you're in the dating stages, but if you realize there's no perfect soulmate, there's no perfect person, right person, there's no the one, it means we're going to have conflict. The question isn't if it comes up, but how we deal with it when it does come up. And in a way, this takes the pressure off of us. I'm not looking for someone where we agree on everything. I'm saying I'm looking for someone where I can choose to love them, knowing it will be difficult at times, but absolutely worth it. Not scared off by conflict. So I learn to say regularly, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Frankly, there's a lot of you here that have been married 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and it would be great for you to reacquaint yourselves with those phrases. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? without qualification. It's critical for us to grow deep character change through deep friendship. And maybe if I could just give you a vision to think ahead to, you know, when you're dating, it's, it's kind of exciting to think about that standing before the pastor, when you're being married, the ceremony, everybody there, you're celebrating together, and, that, and that's a good thing to, to long for, to dream for, it's exciting. But imagine one day standing before the God of the universe when the perfected version of your spouse is there and they've been totally sanctified and the joy that you could have in looking at that person and at God and saying, I am so glad that I had the opportunity to walk with you and for iron to sharpen iron and that I got to play a small part in you becoming this perfected version of yourself. What a gift that is. It makes us patient and humble to recognize we're all a work in progress like that as well. So the pursuit of marriage is really important. It brings us to our fourth point, the challenge of marriage. This one is probably the simplest of all of the the points to understand. The challenge is simply our own sinfulness. Now, that's the challenge, right? If if it weren't for all the other sinners in the world, I'd be doing just great, right? Jeremiah 17, 9 is helpful in, in how we think about this. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In other words, your own heart, my own heart is darker than I know. It's darker than you know. 
There's areas of sin in your heart that you haven't discovered yet. Maybe by God's grace, you'll be seeing it through this sermon of areas you need to ask for forgiveness. This means that the greatest threat to our marriage, catch this, the greatest threat to your marriage lies inside your own heart. It's not in your spouse. It's not in your kids. It's not in the culture around you. The greatest threat lies in your own heart. Nearly 2,000 years ago, the African theologian Augustine said that we have a, a curvature of our being that's curved inward. We curve in on ourselves. We're selfish. So we're looking for check-the-box kind of relationships where we're not giving ourselves entirely to the relationship. We're just giving enough to make it work, giving enough to get what we want back. Tend, tends to be our, our modus operandi. And, you know, it's easy to hear that and maybe think about the, the main causes of conflict, whether it be sex or money or, or whatever else, and think, well, I'm just kind of giving what I have to give so that I can give a little bit back. But I think there's a lot more subtle ways that this works itself out as well, where there are areas where we might make an investment in our marriage when we know that a proverbial withdrawal is coming up as well, where I'm tempted to do the dishes offer my wife a night out because I know the NCAA tournament's coming up. And <laughs> you see, it looks like I'm doing the right thing on the surface, but I'm actually just serving me. I'm not actually serving her. I'm loving me in this act, not loving her. Of course, that, that can be applied across men and women. It's not specific in that way. But we're, we're wise to ask ourselves, what is the heart underneath this action? Am I actually seeking to radically and sacrificially love my spouse? Or do I know that this will be good for me in the long run? Why am I doing this? It's a question of the motive. You know, as, as long as we use this kind of negotiations of a unsaid but very real nature... For a while, things can run fairly smooth. You can get away with that for a little bit. But when you hit a serious challenge, a deeper challenge, you're going to be in trouble. And, and some of you have experienced this. And if you have, a, it may come your way. I hope it doesn't, but it, it likely will at some point. Where you ask yourself, how do I love my spouse in seasons, extended seasons, when I'm not getting love back? How does that happen? Because the negotiating thing kind of works as long as we're semi-healthy, and we can give a little bit back, but we know it's not the right model. What does it look like in extended times of sickness or deep discouragement? What does it look like when my spouse seems just so absorbed with their own problems? What does it look like when my spouse is facing just really high stress with the kids or with their job, and they just don't have time to love me like I need to be loved? If marriage is a consumer good, then we just leave. Fairly simple. Like, well, this is not providing enough value for my wife. See you later. But if it's a covenant good, a covenant relationship, then you stay because we're not running that cost-value analysis. We've already made that commitment. So how exactly does that work, Justin? How does that challenge work itself out? That's the question, isn't it? And then there's many ways I could talk about it, right? I could give examples of people who have endured and persevered through great difficulty, Maybe we could use a, a video testimony and play some, some music in the background to be really gripping, grab you by the emotions. But I think there's something deeper than any of that that would be more helpful, and that brings us to the fifth and the final point, the secret of marriage. 
the secret of marriage. Here's the secret of marriage. How do I give love when I don't want to? That's the secret, to learn to give love when I don't want to. And I know that over time, the act of love produces the feeling of love. It's not the opposite. The feeling doesn't lead to the act. I, I demonstrate love in actions. I recognize that biblical love isn't an emotion. It's a commitment. Love is a verb. Love is a demonstration that will lead to joy. The cultural messaging, of course, tells us that the joy you're seeking, the freedom you're seeking, comes from walking out and getting a divorce and saying, this person, they're not compatible with me anymore. Of course, that's against what the Bible says. But it's interesting that even among secular theorists, there's a growing body of research that says divorce doesn't deliver what it promises. There was a study from the University of Chicago I saw. Listen to what the uh, this study concluded. Divorce did not typically reduce the symptoms of depression, raise self-esteem, or increase a sense of mastery. This was even true after controlling for race, age, gender, and income. Results like these suggest that the benefits of divorce have been oversold. So yes, that's what the Bible tells us, but we're even seeing it just in observing the world around us. It's as if the Bible was actually true and God knew what he was talking about. It was for our good and his glory. You look at me and say, Justin, I get it in theory, that, that sort of makes sense, but you're still telling me what to do, not how to do it. And that's a valid point there. How do I give love when I don't feel like giving love, when I'm not receiving love? And there's a term I heard Tim Keller use one time. It was called love philanthropy. Love philanthropy. And he says, imagine a huge philanthropist. Maybe for us, we didn't envision the Eli Lilly endowment. I think this year they're going to give away more than a billion dollars. So how can you give away a billion dollars? Well, you have to have a source of wealth that's far beyond what you can generate yourself. It's the only way to do that. You say, Justin, I want to be generous working my nine-to-five job. Yes, you can be generous in that way, but not to the same level as the Lilly Endowment can be generous. Why is that? Because it's a source of wealth beyond themselves that allows them to be exceedingly generous. So as a love philanthropist, I'm saying, where can I find a source of love beyond myself that allows me to be incredibly generous? What does that look like? Friends, the secret then is to look to the gospel, to look to Jesus on the cross where we find the greatest demonstration of love, where he is displaying his love in a radical, otherworldly sort of way, and to recognize that when my love bank account is linked to his, then I will find the wealth to give radically, even when I'm not receiving from someone else. Problem is, most of the time, we end up with our love bank account linked to one of two things. It's linked to our feelings or how our spouse is loving us. And both of those have insufficient funds, and they cause us to overdraft. We need to link it to a totally different bank account. This is a different way of saying the gospel isn't just how you become a Christian, it's how you grow as a Christian. Because we recognize that by looking to Jesus as he's on the cross, dying for our sins, with the opportunity to come down, in the greatest act of love, he chose to stay. Not because he saw you as lovely, but to make you lovely. And with our eyes fixed on him, we find the power, the strength, the model 
to continue loving, not because our spouse is exactly the way they ought to be and they're perfectly lovely, but because through love we are made lovely and they are made lovely. And when this becomes your deepest identity, the love that you have received from Christ, then you have experienced and you will experience the real power to have deep change. The real power to show radical love in ways you didn't think you were capable of because here's why, you weren't capable of them. You need a source beyond yourself. See, what I'm saying is marriage just is more than a picture of the gospel. It is that. It's powered by the gospel. And the reason that that marriage is both so challenging and so wonderful at the exact same time is because that's how the gospel is. It's challenging to see my sin up close and personal. It's challenging to have to admit it and be confronted by it. But it's more wonderful than that to see that God's love cannot be stopped by my weakness. It's more wonderful to fix my eyes on Jesus and to drive myself and my spouse into deeper reliance on the gospel. And as I seek to love someone who's flawed, I realize just how flawed I am and just how much love I've received. So friends, this morning, let's commit. Let's commit together. We're not going to settle for these lame self-fulfillment narratives. We're not going to do that here. That's not what it means to be a church formed by the gospel. We're going to fix our eyes on Jesus. We're going to fall into his arms. We're going to let his resurrection power change us deeply to love deeply. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you this morning again amazed at your work on the cross, your love on display. Lord, I ask for for all of us that you would move us just to see how wondrous that is. It is so easy to see the, the sins and deficiencies of others. It's so easy to see our own faults and failures where we don't measure up. And Lord, wherever we get our eyes sideways, we ask that you would help us to fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before you endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God so that we could be called sons and daughters of God. We need your grace. And we ask this morning, right now, for those that are, are grappling don't want to engage on where they need to repent and turn to your love, that by your spirit you would break through in a holy moment and you would not allow their mind to go to other places but to fix solely on who you are, Jesus, and what you've done for them and bring them to repentance. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.